Hi, this is Russell Javers, and you're listening to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Bill Ramon was a, a key figure in my career. Um, he, he was a child prodigy, a violinist, when he was a young kid. He's from South Africa. And uh, he was an engineer uh, early on in the, uh, the pop music industry. If you've ever seen the footage of Marilyn Monroe singing Happy Birthday, Mr. President, to John F. Kennedy, the engineer who got the live recording of that was Phil Ramone. I mean, this guy goes back to, into, you know, great history. Uh, he, he worked with Sinatra. He worked with Bennett. He worked with Ray Charles. He worked with Quincy Jones. Uh, he worked with Paul Simon. He, he worked with Bob Dylan. He worked with everybody, this guy. And he was a very versatile producer. He knew, he understood music because he had been a child prodigy musician. Um, he understood the, the uh, you know, the atmosphere of, of creating an atmosphere for recording artists. Whenever we would get stuck recording a song, we couldn't figure out the arrangement, we couldn't figure out the rhythm or the instrumentation. Phil would do something to distract us from wanting to leave. You go, oh, let's get some Chinese food or you'd order a pizza. Or we'd sit around and start, you know, telling stupid jokes. But... He would keep the the continuum going, trying to get the creative juices to to, to go, uh, you know, to keep to keep spinning. And um, he just he had this genius for it. He, he knew what musicians needed to make good recordings, and it wasn't about technical so much. Uh, we used to record live, where there was no, you know, the vocal was live on top of the instrumentation, where there was a lot of leakage. We didn't care. He didn't care. It was about all about the feel. What feels right? What's going to be the best way that these guys should record this song? And that was his genius. When it comes to Billy Joel's most successful run of albums, you can't talk about the man behind the piano without also talking about the man behind the board, Phil Ramone. By the time Phil and Billy teamed up, Ramone was already a renowned engineer and innovator in the recording studio. His discography included landmark albums by Stan Getz, Frank Sinatra, John Coltrane, Paul Simon, and Elton John, along with soundtracks, movies, and live recordings. Working primarily at Ramone's own A&R Recording in New York, Phil and Billy put out a string of best-selling and award-winning albums, beginning with 1977's The Stranger through The Bridge in 1986, after the one-off song Why Should I Worry from Disney's Oliver and Company in 1988, nearly two decades would pass before they would work together again. But Ramon returned to the control room for All My Life, Billy's last single, released in 2006. It was a fitting end to their partnership. Ramon, who passed away in 2013, cut his teeth engineering classic singers like Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett. Here, he and Billy collaborated on what's arguably the singer's best take on a great American songbook-style track. In this episode, we're exploring the life and work of Phil Ramone. We'll talk about his work with Billy Joel and so much more. Along the way, we'll speak with Bradshaw Lee, an engineer who worked alongside Phil on many classic albums. And we have a special message from Russell Javers, Billy's former guitarist and current member of the Lords of 52nd Street. There's too much to cover in one episode, and we recommend reading Phil's book, Making Records, if you'd like to learn more. But for now, let's dive deep into the works of Phil Ramone. Now, before we get into this episode, we have a special message from Russell Javers. As we were wrapping up the editing on this one, Russell put out a message on Facebook about his work with Phil Ramone and also a project he's involved with today. Russell is on the board of the Phil Ramone Orchestra for Children. This was a foundation that Phil Ramone set up in 2013 prior to his passing. And wanting to help carry on Phil's legacy, Russell joined the board this year. 
and has a very special message about the organization. This is Russell Jabbers, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about the Phil Ramone Orchestra for Children. I'm sure you all know Phil as the producer of Billy Joel's records, but aside from that, Phil's list of credits is astounding. He initially became known as one of the great recording engineers, but then he went on to produce hit record after hit record for Billy, for Paul Simon, Frank Sinatra, and so many others. But as talented and as accomplished as Phil was, I think what I remember most about him is that he was just a great human being. He was kind, generous, he threw the best parties you ever went to. But most importantly, he was always a source of inspiration. And before Phil passed away, he had a dream of bringing music education to underprivileged children. In order to do this, he founded the Phil Ramone Orchestra for Children, which was started in Harlem in 2013, which also happens to be uh, the year that uh, Phil passed away. A few months ago, I was asked to join the orchestra's board of advisors, which I did happily. This is a labor of love for me. Phil meant so much to me, both personally and professionally, that the orchestra gives me the opportunity to keep his spirit and his memory alive. And due to the pandemic, our students and parents and teachers haven't been able to come together in person for lessons and performances. So we're keeping the program going virtually, and that's thanks to our teachers and our musical director and, and especially to the kids. So it would be great if during this holiday season that you would take a minute or two to have a look at what we're doing. And if you're so inclined to give the gift of music by making a donation to help support our kids. Anything you can give will be greatly appreciated, and it'll go a long way to keeping this program going. So check us out online at ramonorchestra.org support, or just send me a Facebook request, and I have all of the orchestra info on my page. So thank you for taking the time to hear my little speech, and I just want to wish you all a very, very happy holiday. This is an exciting episode to do. It's also a little daunting. We're talking about Phil Ramone, the man who produced Billy's greatest run of records from 1977's The Stranger through The Bridge in 1986. But Phil Ramone has such a storied career and such a distinguished reputation that there's just way too much to talk about in just one episode, it seems like. I mean, you know, if we're dedicating an entire podcast to Billy Joel, we could probably dedicate two to Phil Ramone. The amount of classic albums he's had a hand in, the amount of innovations, the foundations he laid down in the recording industry, both from an artistic and a technical standpoint, it's really staggering. You know, we're going to have a special guest on later. That guest is Brad Lee, who was a longtime engineer with Phil Ramone. Bradshaw Lee started his career, as far as Billy Joel goes, as an assistant engineer on Glass Houses. And he was an assistant or associate engineer all the way through the bridge in 1986. So that six-year run of albums Brad was involved in. Along with other projects with Phil Ramone. And so I guess the best way to treat this episode is certainly not the be-all end-all. If you have any interest in the man behind the glass of some of your favorite Billy Joel recordings, and also, as you might find out, some of your other favorite recordings, or if you're just interested in the recording process and especially how it's evolved through the second half of the 20th century, consider this a great jumping off point. I hope that we give you guys a lot to think about, some avenues to explore on your own, some additional reading, additional video watching, and some additional listening. Phil Ramone was actually born Philip Rabinowitz, January 5th, 1934 in South Africa. Though born in South Africa, his origin really is New York. He is a New York guy through and through. And that is where the lion's share of his career resided. If you were going to boil down the Phil Ramone school of recording, he lays it out in five steps. Here are the five tools that will help ensure success in the studio. One, treat your artist well. Two, know the most direct way to record. Three, know which microphones to use. Four, know where to place the microphones. Five, trust what you hear. Phil Ramone always fascinated me. The more I learned about Billy and Billy's music and 
What an integral part he played in the recordings and the success that followed. Phil was the first guy who understood the relationship between Billy and the band and found out the best way to capture it on tape to make the best feeling recording he could. And when you learn more about his production style, you realize that that was a hallmark of the way he worked in a very large sense. Phil had complete control over everything happening at the board in the room, but he was so much more of a set it all up and get out of the way kind of guy. And that's exactly what Billy needed, as we know, because bringing in the Lords made all the difference on those records. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it wasn't just Phil understanding what Billy Joel needed. It was also Billy Joel finding that ally in Phil, someone that was going to know how to coax things out of him and coax things out of the band and know when to step back and step away from it. Billy notoriously didn't have the best studio experiences leading up to The Stranger. Mm -hmm. And as a result, these albums, Cold Spring Harbor, Piano Man, Street Life Serenade, and even through what ended up being the self-produced turnstiles, he just wasn't happy with the end results. So to find somebody who he could rely on and somebody who he could trust with the material and trust with these ideas and allowed Billy to go after what Billy really wanted, that's a true hallmark of a great producer. Somebody who the artist can trust, but also somebody who knows the right balance that you need to strike, when you need to be aggressive, when you need to lay back, when you need to have fun. The best producers can read the room like nobody else. I mean, when you read Phil's book and when you listen to his interviews, and there's some great ones on YouTube, you know, he talks so much about just how he just rolls out the carpet for his artists. And and he even admits to a little bit of it is coddling, but a lot of it is just creating the space for them to do what they do best and just making sure they're comfortable. And I also enjoyed how much he talked about being prepared. He doesn't use the word redundancies, but I will. He engineered a lot of the audio for the original movie version of A Star is Born and talks about how Barbara Streisand wanted to have an actual concert. So they booked concert at a college now this is like a real tight wire moment you know you can't have anything go wrong on the audio because you're running film at the same time and you have this concert and he just talks about all the preparation he did that's a great example of realizing an artist's vision and doing everything in the background like there's nothing romantic there's nothing sexy about we had two tape players running this isn't an an amazing uh and then we you know, ran two tape players concurrently and used a pipe organ that was 200 years old or something like that. This was just very simply, Barbara Streisand knew exactly how she wanted this to happen. And I paved the way to make sure it could. And that's a very unsung yet very integral part of the process. Phil's ability to work with anyone. I mean, when you when you see how uh, he worked with Paul Simon and, you know, Paul Simon's from Queens, but Paul Simon worked so, so differently from Billy. So differently. Right. But that worked just as well. He knew how these different artists needed something different. You know, he didn't treat it like an assembly line. He treated Paul Simon like Paul Simon, Billy Joel and the band like Billy Joel. Billy's sessions were notoriously loud and fun and funny and cracking jokes and having a good time and then going in the studio and (laughs) knocking it out. Paul Simon, for example, completely the opposite. Paul Simon was very detail-oriented, would obsess over one note, have to go for a jog come back and try again. Billy was, you know, I want to do it a couple times before I hate it. And I didn't realize that Phil Ramone had a hand in blood on the tracks. Speaking as someone who's not the biggest Bob Dylan fan in the world, that's definitely my favorite Mm -hmm. Bob Dylan album. The spectrum goes from Paul Simon on one end, Billy's actually somewhere in the middle, and Bob Dylan's on the far other end of the spectrum, where Phil talks about how Bob was going through a breakup and just came in and just started. Never played the same song the same way twice. All the musicians were actually getting a little mad at Phil because Phil wasn't being assertive and making a channel of communication between Bob and the band because they all had to just watch Bob's hands to see what key he was doing it in for that take. Phil wasn't even calling takes. All right, let's go. All right, go ahead. All right, go ahead. Now, apparently, uh, half the tracks were cut later. So half of the tracks were Phil Ramone. The other half were cut in Minnesota. But Mm -hmm. that's just, uh, again, a testament to serving each artist individually. It's never a Phil Ramone production. Phil's objective was making sure the audience knew the artist. Let's uncover what Billy Joel sounds like and not what Phil Ramone sounds like through Billy Joel's hand. Even though Phil may not be the guy behind the drums, the guy behind the piano, (laughs) or with the guitar on, especially in the case with Billy, he is absolutely a member of the band. He's on the back cover of The Stranger. Yeah. And, you know, I've I've seen interviews with Billy where he talked. He's like, you know, I felt like we were a team. We were a unit. Phil was part of that crew. Yeah. 
to Billy, it was a no-brainer for him to be a part of it with the band. Phil's career, especially as an engineer, predated the rock and roll invasion. His first engineer credit was 1958. You know, when did the Beatles hit the U.S.? 1964. The popular music of that day were largely standards. And then the Beatles came in and everything changed. Yeah. You know, in looking through his discography, up until 1977, which is obviously when The Stranger, among many others in his discography, were done, Phil's credits were largely as an engineer. So he really didn't shift full-on into producer mode until 77. Now, he engineered some classics. Coltrane's Olay, Gets Gilberto, that's a landmark album. One that stood out as far as his engineering credits was Alice Cooper. Like, the sole, like, hard rock credit to his career that I'm finding. 1973. (laughs) You know, Phil came from the old school methods. He had a part in some innovations in recording techniques and in the studio, but he came from a school that was very less artistic behind the board. He came up during the Brill Building era, or at least towards the end of it. And so his mandate was always union guys are on the floor. You got three hours, you better get three backing tracks. You can come in and do a sweetening session with horns and strings later, but you need rhythm bed tracks. It was the assembly line. So Phil came from that school. He was recording back in the 50s and 60s when they were really were just doing it like that. 1970, Elton John. Oh, that's right. Well, that was a big one. 11, 17, 70, depending on which version you have. Because, you know, Europe and most other countries flip the day and the month. So in America, it's 11, 17, 70. All other <laughs> releases, it's 17, 11, 70. Yeah. But basically, it's a live recording done at A&R Recordings that Phil Ramone recorded. That album was the one that made him realize that he wanted to work with with songwriters, singer-songwriters versus bands, because bands would come in with whole songs written and done, whereas singer-songwriters, there was work to be done in the studio, which, of course, was how Billy worked and you know how people like yeah. Paul Simon worked. Albeit, guys like Paul Simon worked in different ways. Billy had a road band, but would come in kind of without the songs all written. As I was putting together the notes for this, I think this is another sign of their camaraderie. Phil talks about how they recorded everything. You know, Billy would come into the studio a lot of times, did not have the songs done, and the band would be yelling at him, and Liberty would be throwing sticks. You better have a verse written next time. What am I supposed to play to? So one of the things that Phil Ramone did was he recorded everything, and they called them work tapes. And so a lot of times, if Billy couldn't figure out where to go on something, or if he needed to go in a different direction, or he wanted to try something else, they would go back through these tapes and be like, oh yeah, we had that great idea, or Billy, hey, Billy, you had this great idea the other day, or even two months ago, or even on the last album. Let's let's go back to that, that thing. Do you remember what that was? And he would have his archivist or whomever it was go back, pull yep. the tape. Everything is so well organized and so well documented, mm-hmm. you can find what you need. Remember when we talked about Cold Spring Harbor and going through those demos, did we say, hey, I think that four measure thing ended up in a song If you go back and you look up the Cold Spring Harbor demos, most of those songs were not used, Like, but the genesis of Piano Man's in there, the licks from Summer Highland Falls are in there, and these were written, what, 1970, 1971? Perhaps Billy found his kinship in a way with someone else that would do that, that would make recordings of everything and be ready to dig back in just to find that one lick and throw away the rest of the song. That I think that really helped some great little pieces get salvaged that otherwise would have been forgotten. Tape is the That's cheapest great. commodity on the date, Phil Ramone would say. <laughs> like, go ahead, record it all. It's fine. We, we got plenty of tape. He says, one such instance was a demo called The Prom of Your Life, which Billy and the band recorded at the end of 1981. Billy finished most of the melody and a good portion of the lyric, but for reasons I've since forgotten, it was never completed. Not long after the demo was made, Billy was searching for ideas. He vaguely remembered the demo of The Prom of Your Life, and we rummaged through the work tapes until we found it. Eventually, the opening chords of the demo became the main melody for Don't Ask Me Why, and its chorus turned into the longest time. Well, you know, whatever order that happened exactly, but point being, that's what they did. They went back and they found this thing. They knew it existed somewhere and they resurrected part of it. The melody is clearly there on that Prime of Your Life demo and it turned into such a classic song for Billy. I mean, you know, it's up there. You've got Phil Ramone to thank for it, you know, even becoming a, a song, really. Let's just talk real quick about the difference between an engineer and a producer because I think the line gets blurred a lot anyway and then some people just completely 
misunderstand the two roles. And I think some of the confusion does come from the fact that a lot of producers do begin their careers as engineers. So you see a lot of these guys like Phil Ramone, and I was reading a thing about Bob Rock. You know, he started out as an engineer as well. So an engineer is the person who is actually physically responsible for recording the album, running the board, the tape machine, getting the sound, getting everything ready and physically recording the recordings. Now, by contrast, the producer is more concerned with the overall product, sort of hence the name. It's their job to produce a physical artifact. And so that role means a lot of different things to a lot of different producers. So someone like Phil was a little more hands-off, whereas there are other producers where they kind of put their stamp on everything. You know, people come to them for that producer's sound. Some producers mm -hmm. don't get behind the board at all. Some right. just go ahead and engineer the album as well. But ultimately, the producer is the one that makes sure the record gets completed, put together to someone's vision, be it their vision, the artist's vision, the record label's vision, or some compromise of those three. A big facet mm -hmm. to Phil's career would be A&R Recording, which is Phil's studio that was formed in 1959. He established the studio with his chief engineer, Bill Schwartow. The R in A&R is for Ramon, and the A is for Brooks Arthur, who owned half of the studio yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. So there you had A&R Recordings using initial from their last names, but also the industry term A&R, which is artists and repertoire. Phil's certainly not the first person to open his own studio, but he'd worked at all the major label studios. And at the time, each label had its own studio, CBS Studios, whatever else. And they all had their distinct sound. He was an indie studio, but he was, he was like the indie studio. Yeah, not directly affiliated with any record company. But as far as independent studios, yeah, he was the big dog there in New York. There's so many different recordings that were done in this studio. And Billy, starting with The Stranger, 52nd Street, and actually there's a couple of music videos where you can actually see the studio. Um, all the 52nd Street videos, My Life, Honesty, Big Shot, were all filmed in A&R recording. And I guess My Life has the most footage because they walk down the hall. Sit and in they the, sit in, in the, the control room. Yeah. Another connection between A&R recording and these first two Billy Joel albums that he produced involve the artwork. The Stranger, the back cover, where you have the photo of Phil, Billy, Richie, Liberty, and Doug. Yeah. All sitting around the table at the uh, in the Italian restaurant there. Mm -hmm. This was actually just a candid photo that was done while they were taking a break from recording The Stranger mm -hmm. and all went out to have a meal together. So it was them just out eating. It was suggested that they take a couple photos and there it is. I wonder if that's why it's a dark photo as well. If it wasn't like a photo shoot. Yeah, I don't think it was professionally lit yeah. or anything like that. Right. And that was how <laughs> Phil Ramone later was like, yeah, that's yep. the only way you were going to get me in like a Yankee shirt, let alone <laughs> yeah. like a publicity yep. shot. Because he just happened, he was either wearing it or they gave it to him to put on. <laughs> and the other one is um, 52nd Street, the front cover of Billy standing there in front of the dirty building, mm -hmm. holding the horn. And you see like the elevator next to him. Well, that is on the street level in front of the building that A&R recording was in. You go up that elevator to the top floor, and that's the studio. The back cover, the photo of him look, looking like he's in an elevator, that's the elevator going up to the studio. And then you have the candid shots. That's just the band and everything in the studio. Right. So that's all done right there at A&R. The 52nd Street artwork, all those photos look kind of grainy, aren't super crisp by any means. Yeah. Well, they were all shot with a Polaroid camera. And let's not forget that Phil also spearheaded a lot of technological advances uh, with Billy Joel. So Songs in the Attic was the first digital recording. The digital mobile studio for Songs in the Attic were trucks, like big trucks <laughs> like truck just loaded with digital gear. You know, not only was Songs in the Attic the first digital recording, it was also done remotely all over the country. So not only were they trying to harness this new technology, Phil makes this work on the road. This is the best way to really use digital technology back then because tape machines are very sensitive. Mm -hmm. It does not take much to throw a tape machine out of whack. Um, you know, when I was in school, I we spent a lot of time learning how to calibrate tape machines. It does not take much for things to just stop working or things to get out of sync. And so with digital, you kind of take that component out as the technology gets you know, more proven and more tested, it makes it more dependable. 
Phil was a big pioneer of, of digital recording. And of course, you know, he's the kind of old school guy that talk about how, you know, the mic placement, digital is not the be all end all. Yeah, you could do something in two seconds at, on Pro Tools that could take you a day back then. Right. But it was certainly nothing he shied away from. He road tested the technology pretty much literally with songs in the attic. <laughs> uh, and then he worked out kinks. So when you find out he's back with Barbara Streisand recording Yentl, a big thing that Barbara Streisand had keyed into was that digital doesn't give you tape hits. So all us old heads remember playing a cassette. If you have it all the way up, the song ends and you just hear, and then the next song starts again. You know, they, they would run into that problem sometimes if you were playing very loud and then things got very soft and it was a problem on classical records. The tape hiss would creep in. That does not mm -hmm. exist with digital at all. Understood that there wasn't going to be tape hiss with this, you know, newfangled digital technology. They attempted at first to record her vocals analog on tape and use digital for the band for the orchestra she didn't like it she said the phrasing sounded different she wanted things to sound exactly like they did in analog and so mm -hmm. that wasn't the way he says um you know he, he received three different sources to make the mix from he had a 24 track analog recording 24 track digital and then the analog recording of barbara's voice and he did for an 1983 release had to figure out how to blend this all and make it sound up to what Barbara Streisand wanted. And, you know, this isn't saying Barbara Streisand's being finicky because he sings her praises and says, yeah, she knows exactly what she wants and she makes great records. It worked beautifully for A Star Is Born. It's going to work beautifully for Yentl. And this is how these people work, man. It's like, all right, we're going to try this. It's going to break. We're going to fix it and we're going to figure it out. Yep. Creating a hybrid mix from analog and digital sources was tedious. They cut the analog tape, but cutting digital tape would get into deep trouble the way the information is imprinted on an analog versus digital tape is so different that you can't just snip a digital tape. And they used to be digital tape before it was a disc. Yeah, they're yeah. completely different formats, so they don't natively talk to each other. You couldn't go on a forum and be like, hey guys, trying to do a digital analog hybrid. And some dude that's like been doing it for years ago, all right, bro, yeah, this is all you got to do. It's like, no, he had to sit yeah. there and figure this out. The Phil, time and time again, just always made the artist feel comfortable. Like even with Billy, you know, I read the stories of Billy, crazy as it sounds, never liked his voice. And so he's always trying to sound like somebody else. It's like, oh, he's trying to sound like Steve Winwood. He's trying to sound like Ray Charles. He's yeah. trying to sound like Mick Jagger, whatever it may be. Harkening back to when we were talking about Phil's five tips for success in the studio, you know, especially nowhere to place the microphone. The big thing he did with Billy was let him sit at the piano and play live. And they put blankets and all, all sorts of other things on top of the piano so they could place the microphone inside and reduce mm -hmm. the amount of bleed. But he even says, you know, just his posture, the way he sat, the way his neck craned, that all had so much to do with the way he sang. And that's how they started getting the classic Billy Joel sound. Phil knew early on that the way to get the best performances out of both Billy and the band was to keep it loose. You know, after working with Paul Simon and, you know, a lot of the Frank Sinatra's of the world who things were, quote unquote, more professional and more buttoned up, so to speak. Billy and the band were a bunch of street kids <laughs> who played in a bar band. He knew the magic was going to be to keep it loose, keep it fresh and not keep things too serious. And it's evident all over these recordings. It's not until you compare them to serious pop records that you realize how much vitality Phil captured behind the board, how much personality there really was on those records. This time frame is when Phil also saw his first Grammy Awards with Billy. Now, Phil had won three prior. He won in 1964 with uh, Stan Getz for Best Engineered Recording, 1969 Broadway Cast of Promises, Promises for Best Score, and in 1975, Paul Simon, still crazy after all these years for Album of the Year. So in 1978, we have Just the Way You Are as Record of the Year. That was a mm -hmm. Grammy that they won together. And the following year, there it is, 1979, <laughs> Album of the Year was 52nd Street. And if I'm not mistaken, Billy was not there. So Phil accepted on Billy's behalf, I believe. Billy and Phil getting together with their final recording together, which was in 2006, with the uh, single All My Life. You know, what a fitting end to their relationship together because... Phil Ramone cut his teeth, as we said, on these, you know, a lot of these standards players, and this was Billy Joel's standard, and so he got he got a piece of that. He got the chance to mold a song that was in a new style for Billy, and yet in a style that he started out working in. Yeah. As we talked about 
B-sides and rarities months ago. Through the 90s, Billy tried his hand at a couple standards and really didn't know what to do with them. And I couldn't give credit completely to Phil Ramone. Obviously, you know, Billy matured as a singer and as an artist, but you can't deny the fact that you got these two guys back together and all of a sudden Billy could sing a standard, like for real. I think that's all we have to say about Phil. Let's hear from someone who has much more extensive and intimate knowledge about Phil and A&R recording and what it was like on those Billy Joel dates. Yeah, we're talking with Bradshaw Lee, who worked with Phil Ramone and Billy Joel as an engineer beginning with 1980's Glass Houses through 1987's live album from Russia. And again, for Shades of Grey on 1993's River of Dreams. Along with Billy, he's worked with other artists, including Jimmy Iodine, Tracy Chapman, and Paul Simon. You can find him online at leeaudio.com, L-E-I-G-H-A-U-D-I-O.com, or Brad Lee Audio Engineering on Facebook. And you also have a new YouTube channel, Biased Audio. Brad, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. Uh, When did you start working with Phil, and how did you come to work with him in the first place? Started working with Phil in, uh, I think it was 77, possibly 78. I love this story because it shows you how a little thing in life can change the course of your life. I was an usher at Carnegie Hall, and I was also working in a small studio downtown. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, as an usher, I was at that concert at Carnegie Hall where Phil went and saw Billy and decided to use Billy's band. An usher friend of mine, George Munger, was a high fina. He wanted to buy studio monitors. So I found out A&R was selling some used studio monitors, and I went and met one of the other owners, Don Fry, and I bought these speakers for my usher friend at Carnegie Hall, and in the meantime, asked him for a job because I wanted to be a recording engineer. At that time, you know, the process of becoming a recording engineer was you started running errands, carrying trash. That studio was so big that you worked permanently in the tape library, then you would make tape copies, and then you'd get to sit in as a second on a session. I had worked at another studio, and at that time, the manufacturers of audio equipment had training courses in their factories to repair their equipment. This other studio had this equipment, and so I'd gone to Florida and gotten the training. So the owner said to me, I'll make you a deal. You'll have to start at the bottom again, but I need a tech. So if you come in and tech for a year, I'll let you transition over and train to be a recording engineer. I did that and they kept their word. What was that hierarchy like? Somebody could be in the tape room? We were using analog tape then. So every session had many reels of tape that Mm -hmm. had to be delivered to the session. And when the session was over, stored safely. So we had a library in the basement of A&R. So you would work full-time as a tape librarian, which is you just sit down there and somebody would call and go, hey, we got a session here. We need these tapes. We've got a session Mm -hmm. there. We need these tapes. And then you would work up to making tape copies because in those days, you know, if you did a jingle session, uh, commercial, it would have to be Mm -hmm. transferred to film. They would want a reel-to-reel reference to take back to their office. So there was a massive amount of duplication that was done after a session. So that was the next job. And then you would become an assistant engineer uh, where you would learn from a staff engineer. So what were your roles as a tech? Because you said, you know, you would start as a tech and then graduate to engineer. Well, this is how I also got involved with Phil. When you have a recording session in those days, every instrument was recorded with a musician playing it. There was no digital audio. There was no MIDI. There were almost no synthesizers. You would have a session where if there's strings on a jingle, you've got 20 musicians out there all making 100 bucks an hour. Downtime was really expensive. Any technical problems would cost a lot of money. So all major studios in those days had at least one and sometimes multiple technicians on staff all day, all night during the sessions. So there would always be a a Maytag repairman down the hall if there was any little glitch. And that's how I met Phil. And that's how Phil first started to like me was I had started working at A&R just after The Stranger. Billy came back and recorded 52nd Street. And Phil was the owner of A&R, the main owner, and pretty temperamental and perfectionist. And I'm this, you know, 19-year-old kid, scared, sitting down the hall, just praying nothing goes wrong on this Phil Ramone, Billy Joel day. And of course, something did go wrong. And, you know, I went in and handled it and they questioned me and they grilled me. I got out of it alive. And then Phil (laughs) said to the manager, this is the kid I want on my sessions when I'm in this building. 
A&R had two buildings and his main studio was in the other building. So he came over to work in the big old Columbia recording studio. So wow. he said, when I'm over here, this is the guy I want covering my session. So that's how I first got some contact with Phil. You mentioned that Phil was could be very temperamental and certainly a perfectionist. Uh, did that also translate to his work in the sessions as well? Where it translated to working with the artist was everybody but the artist. You know, normally you would come in and set up for a session and you'd position all the mics and the musicians would roll in and you'd start to get your levels and your sounds and stuff. But with Phil, you had to triple check and quadruple check. You know, you didn't just listen to the headphones to make sure they were working with the click track. You listened with music to make sure they sounded right. You grabbed the intern down the hall to bang on the drums so you had a level. His technical perfection and his sort of venom was directed towards his side of the glass so when the artist walked in, what Phil wanted, I think, was for the recording studio to disappear. You know, the artist comes in and they go, all right, I'm writing this song. Oh, now I want to do this other setup. Oh, no, now we want to do this. One of the main things that would gave me great pride, like working with Phil, and I worked with Phil for about eight years, was let's say you're tracking a Billy Joel record. Well, you come in at three o'clock and you're working until 11 o'clock at night with one dinner break. So there's a lot of bullshitting around. There's a lot of playing nonsense, playing a McCartney tune or whatever. There were two things that happened. One was Phil always kept a reel-to-reel machine recording in the back. Mm -hmm. And that way, if anybody just, you know, if Billy hummed, oh, I could do this in the chorus or whatever, it wasn't lost. He wouldn't come back and go, what did I do? You could go back and take that two track and find it. Mm -hmm. But the other thing was you had to be really in tune to the session. So when I'm sitting there as a 20-year-old kid, as the assistant engineer, my job was running the tape machine. Well, a reel of tape only last 15 minutes. So you can't constantly be in record on the multi-track machine. So you yeah. got to sit there and not record. Now they may go, let's do another take. You go into record. Great. You got to keep in your mind how long the song is and will the reel run out during that take. So you're not rolling a lot. But the great thing was you're listening to the musicians play around and you start to hear something cool and you hit record. And then the first thing Phil do is he, is he would whip his head over and look, did you get in record? Like you had to intuitively know something was happening. When that moment was coming. Yeah. Right. And you had to grab it. There was no take two with Phil. There was no redo it. And that's why he trained such great engineers. Because if you effed up, he what he would do is he'd put his coat on and go, figure it out. You would have to go back and fix whatever you recorded wrong and make it acceptable to the artist because he was not going to mess with the artist's head. And the other side of that, which demonstrates that is Phil was very rough on me. Very, Phil was very tough on text. He was very tough on recording engineers. But like when you recorded on analog tape, it was destructive. When you hit record, you were removing something else. So let's say somebody's got a great performance, right? And like Billy's, most of his vocals in the early records were primarily live. So let's say, go, all right, we want to go back and just fix the last two lines of that chorus. So you as the 19-year-old kid have to play the tape right before that word, go into record. And as soon as those two sentences are done, go out of record. But nobody's yeah. perfect. Right. So sometimes you would screw up. You would clip the beginning of the word of the next verse. And Phil would look around, look at you and just mumble under his breath so the artist couldn't see it. He would go, did you lose that? Did you wipe it? And you'd go, yeah. And he'd hit the talk back and go, you know, you did that chorus so good. I want you to do the first line of the next verse because <laughs> it will make a better transition. And the, so that way it wouldn't upset the artist. They wouldn't see Phil get upset. So, you know, right. it was all keeping that flow going. What I've always read about Billy is he did not like doing multiples. He liked to capture it while it was fun and fresh. And so, you know, if you're beating a song into the ground, he's going to lose interest. And that probably would reflect in the take. Oh, yeah, yeah. Never, never beat a song in the ground. And and the great thing with Phil was it was very apparent on the Billy dates is he'd be working on a song and you do a few takes. And there would be an earlier take that was maybe just a little off kilter, but Phil really liked it. And then they'd keep going and they'd smooth that out and the band would walk and go, oh yeah, that's the take. And they'd listen back to the playback and they would go, yeah, that's the take, that's the take. And then one or two things would happen. They might go, you know, we can do better. And Phil would go, nah, you know, I don't think so. But if you want to, go <laughs> ahead. I think that other take is the take. And they'd go back in and they'd redo it. And then, then they play those two takes and then Phil would go, all right, now go back and play take three. And, yeah. and that would, then the band would just go, yeah, that's the take. 
Well, we've been talking about, you know, Phil's sort of overall approach in the studio, but he was also an accomplished musician. Did his knowledge as a musician and his knowledge of music theory, things like that, did that seem to play in a lot to how he acted as a producer or was that sort of secondary to just his his? You know, I think that was fascinating about Phil was, I'm not sure when I first met him that I knew that he was a prodigy violinist. You know, I learned that after I got to know him for a while. To his credit, no. It wasn't apparent. It may have been in his mind, but he never, you know, like sort of another type of producer that, you know, is somebody that I just loved is Quincy Jones. Now, Quincy is so deep in the music, so deep into every note that every musician's playing, that all his conversation comes out of the chart. You know, no, that's a B flap, not an F sharp. And it would all be very specific, but he had the musicians that were going to capture the vibe. Phil always talked in a much more, I don't know, poetic way, which sort of, I think, was great because I know incredible musicians that couldn't read. It was more talking about the vibe and the style and the feel. And he may sometimes, you know, specifically say like a beat, but he would, you know, he would more pull up a musical reference than he would sing you a beat. You know, he yeah. he loved talking about Kurt Weill or Schmielsen or, you know, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So he yeah. would pull up a, or a samba or, you know, he'd pull up a reference more than talk strict musical terminology. So you came up, uh, you know, as a tech into an engineer and we know Phil did the same thing in the, you know, in that sense that he came up, you know, as an apprentice. To the best of your knowledge, how did Phil come up with his approach, with his philosophy? I'm, I'm kind of curious about that because I get the feeling that, you know, engineers and producers didn't go to school for it the way they do now. And it seems like they just kind of wrote their own playbooks back then. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun. And A&R had a specific thing, which was fantastic, which was one engineer trained one engineer. So Phil Ramone trained Elliot Shiner, who did Steely Dance mm-hmm. Asia. Elliot Shiner trained Ed Rack. Phil Ramone trained Jim Boyer. Jim Boyer trained me. And then because Phil was still doing some engineering when I started with him, some mixing, Phil trained, finished up my training. So it was always a one-on-one. So you were getting that guy's style. The other thing you were getting was that guy's clients because there was so much time being booked that if there was a jingle engineer that was doing a lot of work and he wasn't available, they would grab his trainee. And I got work because I had worked with Phil. I have to tell you, one of the big heartbreaks in my life was Phil can be difficult. And I was a young snot-nosed kid. And I took eight years of it. And we eventually bumped heads. And we separated for a number of years and didn't really have any contact. And then uh, I was at uh, Right Track Recording in New York. And Phil was working there a lot. And we rekindled our friendship. And uh, Phil gave me uh, a rough cut of the Sinatra session that I was involved with, one of the last sessions at AR. And it was it was a, a more musical sort of rough cut. It wasn't like this VHS that you can buy that's just like a VHS, you know, like an MTV video. Mm-hmm. But we got to talking and I asked him if I could interview him for a documentary. I wanted to record him because I wanted to find out how did he go from South African prodigy violinist to recording engineer? Because like I knew he at one point lived with Quincy Jones. Like how did that happen? So um, mm. it's a little vague to me. I don't know how he got to own his own studio. I know he often referred to Bob Fine and Wynn Schwartow. Uh, it was Bob Fine, I think, that uh, had trained him as an engineer. But that exact jump, I never really got the answer to. Phil, and I'm guessing by extension A&R, was at the forefront of uh, digital recording in the, <laughs> I guess, late 70s, early 80s, right? Phil loved and hated to be on the cutting edge of technology. He would get you on it and then get mad at you for doing it when it caused problems. One of the earliest multi-track digital sessions I saw was that last Sinatra recording, L.A. is My Lady. That album was done in A&R's A1, and we had a Sony 3324, which was a new digital machine at the time. And there were, there were three techs standing by in case it caused any problems, including Roger Nichols. I don't know if you know him, but... He was one of the other engineers on all that Steely Dan stuff. But he was yeah. also, a, like me, he was also a tech. The first changeover was stereo. There was a machine called the 1630 that recorded stereo digital audio on videotape. So the early compact discs, the ones that were released with the first release, 
of the album were frequently digital stereo. The Sinatra was the first digital multi-track. Phil had friends that was GRP Records that was working in his studio that had this weird eight-track Soundstream, I think it was. Yes, so we did a lot of a lot of early stuff, technical stuff that was new. But Phil would also, you know, like I said, he never wanted to disrupt the artist. So he, you know, you'd mm-hmm. get this new piece of gear and then something would go wrong. And then he would go out and make a few phone calls and come back and go, enough with the AES meeting. We've got to get working. And then you'd have to like toss that new piece of equipment away because it was <laughs> causing issues. One thing I always found fascinating about Billy and his band, as opposed to the, some of the different artists that, you know, you and Phil had worked with is that up until working with Phil, they weren't experienced players in the studio, meaning they weren't session guys. And the fact mm-hmm. that Phil and the team was able to make them work as a studio band when they were really these road dogs was really fascinating how that worked. First of all, the amount of recording sessions that occurred in the 70s and 80s, I can nobody right. will ever believe me. Every note that you heard, if it was Muzak in an elevator, if it was a jingle on a commercial, if it was a film score, it was played by a human being. You know, there was a tremendous amount of business doing jingles because someone like Coca-Cola would say, we want to do a new campaign. And they would send it out to a bunch of ad agencies. So all these ad agencies had to record demos for their version of what they wanted the Coke jingle to be. And then it would become the final. And then that one ad agency would redo it. So getting good musicians was hard. The way you gauged musicians was by how much they got paid. Like certain guys, everybody was scale. And I think it's about the same. It was like 300 bucks for three hours. Mm-hmm. You were really good. You were double scale. And then some guys were triple scale, you know, like the gads and stuff like that. They're, they're yeah. going to be, so they're mm-hmm. hard to get. I remember Quincy did a date in New York where he grabbed, you know, Ashford and Simpson and every singer in the world. And they couldn't do a jingle on that day because they were all booked on a Quincy date. So getting raw young musicians, you were always looking for the new guy. I like I remember working with Marcus Miller when he was like 18. He became the new guy. He became a session musician. Phil liked that. He always liked to work with new talent and he always liked to was looking for new musicians and would give a lot of people a shot. So, you know, in the case of Billy, yeah. Billy's band brought something to the music that I couldn't hear another way. And and Phil heard that. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter. Maybe I'll get slammed for this. Maybe the edge knows how to play three notes, but he does it in a way that, that makes a great song. When you hired a studio musician, first of all, don't forget when you hired a studio musician, you were hiring them for their musical personality. You could make them change and they could be technically very proficient. Big difference is for, you know, studio musicians had to sight read and play it like on the first or second take. There was no real rehearsing or whatever. So that's mm-hmm. one of the prime differences. But Phil was always looking for someone to add some unique personality, whether it was an unknown musician or a studio musician. He was always throwing people in the mix. When digital recording was first coming out, what did people like Phil see as the advantage to it? Was it just getting rid of tape hiss or was it was there more to it than that that they saw in it? Well, there was a few big advantages. We love getting rid of the tapists. Let's say you were mixing a song in the analog days, and it could be 24 or 48 track. The mm-hmm. assistant engineer would spend two, three hours going through every track and automating, turning off the console between every time that musician played. Otherwise, wow. the cumulative tapists would have been ridiculous when you got the high track counts. In general, we weren't that bothered by the sound. I think we were so impressed with the clarity and the lack of noise that that was a big difference. Another really huge difference, generational loss. And what would happen is, listen, those sessions were expensive. You spend mm-hmm. a day of studio time, hire an engineer, hire a producer, hire musicians, and you're into multiple thousands per day. And not only that, with Phil, a take, a performance was precious. It wasn't like, well, we can redo that. There was no, mm-hmm. we can redo that with Phil. <laughs> like that's the freaking take. Right. So yeah. when the session's over, I have to stay up all night making copies of these multi-tracks and sending them somewhere else. Because so, a tape machine can eat a tape. You know, mm. it's, a, it's a machine. It yeah. can chew up a tape. So you always had to make copies. 
And so another advantage with that noise in digital is when you make a copy, it's a one-to-one. So there's no... There's no signal degradation. If you were to lose the master, so what? You got a digital copy, it's the same as the master. We can mix that just as well. You mm -hmm. damage your master on an analog recording, and when you get to the second generation, you would then be having a noisier tape with higher distortion that you were mixing the song on. Now, one other really big thing, huge thing. In general, we were working 24 track. Now, when it got into the 80s and around digital stuff, you could lock two machines and do 48 track. But when you were working even 48, when you're working 24 track, that's not much. You put six tracks down for the strings. So what we would do, give an example, you're doing backgrounds on, let's say, Innocent Man mm -hmm. with all those doo-wop harmonies. You'd lay down the first part. Mm -hmm. You'd lay down the second part. You'd lay down the third part. When you went to the fourth part, you would be live mixing the first three parts and the fourth part to a new track. Now all four parts are on one track. Now you go back and you erase those first three tracks and you double it. By combining those three tracks with the live mics, you're combining three tracks of noise right. with a live mic. Mm -hmm. If you have a quiet song and you have a great lead vocal, but you do a second vocal and you want to grab some lines, you, you've got two things to do. With Phil, you'd get ballsy sometimes and transfer into the master track. But mm -hmm. in general, what you did was you took lead vocal one, lead vocal two, and then you recorded them together onto a new track, lead vocal three. Now your lead vocal is down a generation and has all that noise. So right. you didn't get that on digital. It was greatly minimized. So that right. flexibility in working without being penalized and especially when the digital machines became automated in that Let's say you had a lead vocal that was good, but Billy wanted to fix one line. When I was working with Phil, we would get a good take. And let's say Doug wanted to redo a chorus. Well, a bass is almost impossible to punch in and punch out of a chord during the take because it usually sustains to the next note. So what we would do is I'd have to get up, grab a razor blade, slice the tape where that next note was, put a piece of paper in it, and that way we'd go in and record. Doug would do his bass fix. And we'd punch in at the beginning, start recording at the beginning of the chorus. And then instead of having to worry about punching out, it would just hit the paper leader. And then we would remove the leader and it would come back. So digital machines became automated with that feature. So if Billy wanted to fix one line, we would do it on another channel. And then we would tell the machine where to go in to record, where to go out. It would do a digital transfer and there'd be no signal degradation. So that's a lot of things that people don't really think about when they compare an analog and digital. You were talking about, you know, specifically like, you know, with the background vocals with an innocent man, it's you've got to make decisions as you're tracking because you're committing all these background vocals. You're, you're yeah. bouncing them down to a track. And so and then they're gone for good. And by the way, that's what made those old records so damn good. And, and I'll give you an example. First of all, there was the curse of the rough mix. Phil, you know, every day you would, you would you'd track a song, you do a rough mix, then you do some guitar of dubs, you do a rough mix, and you add the vocals, you do a rough mix. Phil wants to move on to the next song and do the background mm -hmm. vocals. So I've got seven minutes to do a rough mix. So I'm like a musician. I'm not thinking. I'm just pushing, and I'm <laughs> right. balancing, and I'm recording. And then a month later, I go back, and I have all day long to mix that song, and I cannot get it to sound as good as that damn rough mix that I did in seven minutes because <laughs> my I, I was just playing the instrument. You know, my mind wasn't thinking. Right. You didn't have a time to overthink it. Yeah. And with Phil, you know, another thing he didn't, and this was shown a lot with Billy. And like I said about him wanting the studio to be sort of disappeared to the artist. So anything could be there on a minute's notice. We did something which at the t in the seventies was relatively unusual, which was we hooked up a lot of outboard effects that were ready to go. Yeah. We had a phaser pedal wired to the console. We had a mm -hmm. roll in tape echo wired to the console. We had a handful of things and Billy would just go, oh, you'd be starting working on a song and he'd go uh, uh give me some foosh foosh that's what he called a flanger a phaser put some foosh give me some foosh foosh now the foosh foosh could be on the piano the foosh foosh could be on the vocal you know but it wouldn't be billy playing with something out there we do it in the control room, but we always recorded it on a separate track because that sound was key to that performance do you know what i mean like if you sing with a certain tape delay like john lennon then mm -hmm your performance is going to be molded to that delay that you're hearing. So we would always record those effects separately. Didn't matter how crappy they were. 
that was it. You know, that was the sale. And I remember reading how you all had set up for Billy in the live room for a few different set effects that he could dial in for his headphones, similar kind of situations to where if he wanted a little more reverb, yeah. a little more something, he could just kind of dial in his sweet spot on the fly. Yeah, well, that wasn't maybe later, but there was okay. no real mixer at the musician position. So we sort of did it from the control room, but we had these sort of presets that, like I said, he could use his vernacular because he's not... He's not a technical guy. Do you know what I mean? Mm. He, he's a musician. And that's what's so unfortunate about how the world has changed. I don't want to be, oh, the old days were so good. But there was a time. See, what made me <laughs> thrilled as a recording engineer was, I can tell you a couple of the highest points in my career. Please, but yeah. it was Tony Levin spent his life to play the bass. 100% of him was consumed to play the bass. You know, Steve Gadd. Started with military drumming. His life was drums. And my life was engineering. So when those guys came in the studio, they could be pretty much oblivious to the technical side. Now, there is an advantage that guys today can tailor stuff to their own likes, but their focus was purely on the music and you guys deal with the technical. And, you know, I can tell you two of the strange high points in my life was one, I was working with a band and Bono and Edge stopped by. Nigerian reggae band and uh, that they loved. And Edge leans over while there's a playback and goes, yo, man, what are you using on the kick? That and working with Tracy Chapman, which was, um, you know, the, the percussion Minu Salinu and Steve Thornton, who had done all the Sting records, Tony mm -hmm. Levin on bass, Roy Bitten on piano, and God, Manu Cache on drums. You know, they come in for a playback and like mm -hmm. Steve Thornton says, man, the gym bass sounds great. See, that's it for me. That's it. You know what I mean? He's dedicated <laughs> yeah. his life to freaking percussion. And so I'm one of them. Do you know what I mean? In yeah. my own way, I've raised myself up to one of them. We were reading through the Phil book and it seemed like he did a lot of, he was involved with a lot of landmark recordings for various artists. Was that something that was just part and parcel for different people or was that something Phil gravitated towards or had a penchant for? His discography. If mm -hmm. you go into like discogs, yeah. you'll just be like, no. No. Coltrane? No. No. You know, I mean, just, just Girlfriend Ibanema? No. I mean, just those two references I'm giving you, there are hundreds of them that I can't think of. I was just editing a video and I went back and went through Discogs and even I was happy. You know, Marilyn Monroe singing Happy Birthday, Mr. President, recorded by Phil Ramon. Was it really? Oh, Unbelievable. yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the early then? Streisand in the park. Mm -hmm. The early Streisand recordings recorded by Phil. I think what happened with Phil in some regards was he was a musician right. that got two big things. He was a therapist for the artist and he understood what the technical capabilities were. And he would stretch mm -hmm. the technical capabilities so the artist, because, you know, people like Streisand are difficult. Mm -hmm. You know, Billy wasn't difficult. But Billy was a great singer-songwriter. He didn't have the temperament for the process of making the record. Right. And by the way, that's what mm -hmm. sort of bit us in the ass in River of Dreams was mm -hmm. I felt kind of bad because, you know, I went out to the boathouse in Shelter Island when they were saying, well, Billy mm -hmm. wants to do this. He wants to do a raw, rugged album, you know, a dirty record. He doesn't want it polished. Can you make this work? And when mm -hmm. I went out there, we basically recorded virtually the entire album. And they decided that they had wanted some singles. And so they added, Danny they, they, so Danny Korchmar was coming in to do a few singles. But on that point, I still felt like a kid. Like Billy had just gotten a boat built. And it was mm -hmm. the first boat that he had built that was all custom to his thing. And he would, you know, he'd come up to me and go, hey, Brad, you want to play hooky? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and we'd get on the boat and go out of red. You know, so he needed somebody to drop the responsibility in their lap of all the aspects of the recording that he mm -hmm. didn't have the patience for. And I didn't pick up the slack. You know, it was me and Tommy Burns. And I still didn't feel like, you know, because I started out as a 19 year old kid with it, right. you know, so I still didn't somehow, <laughs> you know, try to grab the reins, though I don't know if I would have been able to. But if you were to go back and listen to those tracks that were cut, they're almost identical, they, you know, with Lib and Skylar and Tommy Burns. They are very close to what that record became when Korchmeyer recut it with all studio musicians. And the irony of it was, so then they released the record. And then I go see Billy live at the Garden. And it's back to that band. So it sounds like <laughs> the versions that we had cut in the Boathouse. It's funny because I've, I've heard a handful of those and... 
it's like you really hear them in many instances trying to recreate what you guys had already done out there. And for me, you know, a lot of guys did that at the time. Like Springsteen had used almost yeah. a band in that time period, I think. You know, Zach Alford and stuff. There's a certain grit to live that I love. There's a certain mania. There's a certain... And 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 like Doug's playing too. Right. I just... I love that yeah. stuff. It's something that it's hard to articulate, but you know when it's not there. We found that out. Uh, we just did an episode going through all these cover songs of Billy Joel songs. And, and we said that the, that's when you really realized how great uh, the Lord's band was because once I love they're not seeing on them those live. records. Yeah. I've, I've seen them. I've seen them once. Uh, I was hoping to see them this year, but obviously that didn't happen. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, they were, they were amazing when I saw them up close and personal. Nothing yeah. like it. Yeah. They were great. Billy still sounds great. Obviously the musicians he's got with him wouldn't be with him if they couldn't play their asses off. They're great meat players and everything like that. But then you go see Richie and Liberty and Russell and them. And it's like, yeah. you're taken right back to those early live performances. And it's, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. It's, it's fun. a lot of fun. Just thinking about what it was like bringing those guys in the studio. Now, you know, by the time you were working on Glass Houses, the core band would have been working on their fourth record together. What were they like in the, you know, what was it like with them in the studio? You talked about it feeling very live and they were really just capturing those performances. First of all, it was fun. Yeah. I mean, that's that's part of the, re you know, Phil Sessions, you know, when we did those dates, it was the big old Columbia recording studios on 52nd Street that was the, had become mm -hmm. A&R. And we would put clip lights up on high mic stands, colored lights. So the room was black and there was just colored lights over the different musicians. So it was sort of like a stage, but sort of industrial. Nobody uh -huh. ever walked into a Phil Ramone session that was not working on the session. And that whole thing about, mm -hmm. you know, the technical, about get all the problems out fixed in advance and make sure it's smooth. It became like a clubhouse. And it was fun. Like the, it was a lot of fun. Those Billy records I just remember were being fun. And, yeah. you know, to my knowledge, you know, my memory, Doug was pretty quiet. Lib's personality. I mean, oh, come on. Gosh. Lib's personality is, <laughs> so it was, so it was the Phil, Billy and Lib show as far as like the jokes going back and forth. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And those guys were tight buddies. You know, it was, it was supposed to be fun. And, you know, there was a hierarchy. Phil was king. Yep. Phil was absolute uh -huh. king. Billy would, you know, kind of trust him. And uh, Lib would bust some chops. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> he is forever the comic relief. Yeah. He is, uh, he, I, I've known him for 20 years now. And first thing that struck me when I met him was his sense of humor. He's just hilarious. I mean, I don't think Russell on those sessions was, ver you know, as vocal as he is now because he was one of the last guys brought in. But Russell is one of the funniest people I've ever met. Russell is a riot yeah. <laughs> and a great musician, too, man. He sh he should have been famous. He wrote some stuff I loved, And he wrote stuff that Phil used. He wrote mm -hmm. stuff that Phil used with other artists. Oh, that's right. There was like oh, a, yeah. I know a couple like Karen Carpenter. Yeah. It's incredible. And just that organic chemistry that those ingredients all together in one room it, it comes through so well in the recordings and that's i think that's part of what always drew me to it brad we want to thank you again for taking the time to speak with us it was really insightful to learn more about your work with phil and with billy and his process along the way so thanks again for uh chatting with us my pleasure it's been a lot of fun Man, what a great conversation. There was just so much we heard from Brad. Like, there's stuff I expected to hear, and then there were stories and stuff about the recording process that I didn't even have a clue about going in. Absolutely. You know, we've heard the stories from Billy, from the band, from Phil over the years, but we haven't heard a lot from Brad, who was an integral part of a lot of these records, so it was so cool to get a totally different perspective on a lot of this stuff. Exactly. We're going to have Brad on again for our next episode because he's got so many more stories just about Billy uh, and stories that go beyond Billy's work with Phil that we just decided to have a whole nother conversation about those. And that'll be on our first episode of 2021, which makes this a great time to thank you all so much for making the first year of this podcast just amazing and so great beyond our wildest expectations from when we started this literally on December 31st, 2019. Yep. That was the very first conversation between Jack and I after I reached out to him and he was interested in doing this podcast and we had no idea what to expect. You know, we were fully prepared for it to be just two new friends 
talking Billy to nobody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like maybe five of our other friends. You know, who would check it out for once and be like, cool, you did a thing. Yeah. <laughs> but I had no idea where it would go. And just so you all know, this is amazing. We're wrapping up the year approaching like 20,000 downloads. Uh, each episode, a lot of them average around 500 listens each. It, it's just astounding. And I, I had no idea it would resonate this well. Yeah, we've tapped into a community that has been such a treat to find hearing your stories and your connections to our topics. It, you know, it feels like a whole new group of friends sharing these experiences. And this is beyond anything I could imagine. And the fact that we actually launched in February and by the end of the year, we've got this great community of listeners. It's such a treat and we're, we're honored to put these together uh, for you guys. Yeah, thank you guys so much. And we promise to return the favor even more next year with more great episodes. Uh, more great guests, and anything we can think of to make it more enjoyable for you all. Absolutely. There is so much more to tap into. So many more studio albums, live albums, you name it. We're just scratching the surface, so it's going to get real fun. Yeah, for sure. Uh, But for now, as always, let us know what you thought. What's your favorite Billy Joel and Phil Ramone collaboration? Uh, If it turns out you have any of the other albums that Phil worked on, did anything jump out at you about it, Uh, either originally or now that you know he had a hand in it, or now that you know more about his production style. Absolutely. You can email us anytime at glasshousespodcast at gmail.com. And we're all over the socials as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you search Glasshouses Billy Joel Podcast, you'll find us. Connect with us there. Uh, we'd love to talk to you all. And please reach out anytime. And happy holidays. Happy New Year. And we'll see you all soon. We'll see you in 2021. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>